Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Well, hello, and thank you very much indeed for inviting me to be part of this excellent series on the life of the mind. As you will have seen, I hope my focus is on poetry. So I thought I'd begin in a personal way and read a poem to you. Uh, It's a poem by the contemporary British uh, poet, Wendy Cope. She was born in 1945. I heard her read this poem when I was um, in my early 20s. It's a day I remember very well. Uh, It's a poem about her grandmother, and the poem is called Names. She was Eliza for a few weeks when she was a baby. Eliza Lily. Soon it changed to Lil. Later, she was Miss Steward in the baker's shop, and then my love, my darling, mother. Widowed at 30, she went back to work as Mrs. Hand. Her daughter grew up, married and gave birth. Now she was Nana. Everyone calls me Nana, she would say to visitors. And so they did. Friends, tradesmen, the doctor. In the geriatric ward, they used the patient's Christian names. Lil, we said, or Nana. But it wasn't in her file. And for those last bewildered weeks, she was Eliza once again. I listened to that poem being read and found that I was crying. And I remember realising also that day that I needed more poetry in my life. It began quite a journey for me, um, wanting to explore uh, more poems, uh, understand their life and their work, as it were. And I committed myself uh, there and then to half an hour every day Uh, to read poetry, and it's um, something I still maintain. When I look back at that day, uh, what was going on? Why the tears? Why the sense that something snoring in me had been woken up with just 107 words? That's the the amount of uh, words in that poem, 107. Why the feeling that some hard little full stop in me had been or was being turned into a comma, allowing something closed down to open up, begin afresh, although the sense was elusive and somewhat out of my own control. 
When I wrote a book years later uh, on poetry, I called it The Splash of Words. And that's because that's how it felt and feels. You have a pebble of words, as it were, thrown into the pool of me. And after that initial surprise and splash, that sort of quiet period when you suddenly take in the poem, you have the ripples or the effects begin to head towards your shore. And when they meet land, the sand and the stones on you and in you are uncomfortably sometimes, but liberatingly shifted. Beachcombing becomes a lot more interesting. But when we use this word poetry, I'm aware that there's a bit of a paradox around. First, some respond to that word poetry with a lot of fear, or they give you a shrug of puzzlement. Many have memories, painful memories, from school, being humiliated in the classroom because they couldn't remember or they couldn't understand a poem, uh, or being bored in that class. Uh, and they're a at a bit of a loss, really, to see what all the fuss is about. Later in life, these people often try to get back into it. Uh, so they go to the bookshop, opening up the books on the bookshelves. They realise that you don't get uh, many words for your money. There's a, a lot of um, blank space on the page of these books that you're forking out for. Um, but these people quite often will read, uh, wanting to get back into poetry, but they just realise they don't understand what's going on here. Uh, and they feel they need help. But frankly, life's a bit too short for all that. So they conclude that it's obviously a little bit like um, Morris dancing or karaoke, uh, clearly for other people and just not for me. Now, the complaints... Uh, of such people, um, very genuine, uh, and I think of these. First of all, they say that it's difficult, and it is, um, but it's too costly and difficult. It's language, but not as we know it or understand it. You have to put quite a lot of effort in, and you're not quite sure it's worth it. Um, there seem to be a lot of rules, a lot of long words and terms, um, a lot of talk about forms and resonances and assonance and all these things. And frankly, it's all a bit of a turn-off. So there's that question that it, it feels as if it's, it, it's for some sort of um, professional elite. Secondly, the complaint is often raised that it's all too ambiguous, non-binary, as it were. Nobody seems to be able to tell you what it really means. What's a right reading of a poem? What's a wrong reading of a poem? Nobody can tell me. Uh, this is frustrating for many people. And if you're looking for truth, and who isn't, surely this is an art form that's just avoiding the concept. It's a sort of perpetual flirt who never satisfies. 
at the end of the day, it's concluded, uh, poetry is a sort of high art form for a small group of intellectual types who just like to indulge their feelings. But the paradox is that at the same time, poetry is also triggering off a different response. There's a, a growing popular passion for poetry around the place at the moment. It's being celebrated as a natural way to recount and examine personal experience and perception. A lot of people are writing poetry. There are more and more published volumes of poems. People turn to the poetic quite frequently, such as when they're protesting at the shooting of a black man by police, or they're celebrating the demise of a president. Creative writing courses are flourishing in universities across the world. Poetry slams are more important and popular than ever. Poems are there, uh, printed on the inside of the underground trains. You can find them up in doctor surgeries and you can hear them being read at significant occasions. We have National Poetry Days. We have Poet Laureates and Poets in Residence. And those residences can be museums, prisons, cathedrals and lots of other places. And poets, of course, are there continuing to write poems as lyrics for songs from Bob Dylan to rap. Poetry is being used to explore life and the inner life from young offenders institutes to hospices to pub poetry groups. So there is a popular realm to the poet uh, and to poetry, as well as a sense that it is for some sort of intellectual elite. It's a bit of a paradox. Now, these people who are enjoying and celebrating and embracing poetry, what are they saying? Um, if they're not complaining, what are they saying is good about it? Well, first, I think they're saying that there is um, a distillation uh, in poetry, a simmering off of the superficial to get to something that matters, and that this can only be done by not being prosaic with words. We need a language to go to the gym, as it were, to, to exercise itself differently. If we're to dive deeper in understanding the world, in understanding uh, ourselves. So there's that sense of poetry's distillation. And then, secondly, Contrary to the idea that difficulty is frustrating, poetry lovers embrace its difficulty. They know that just as in life, the difficult times are often the most important ones to your development and to your growth. So too, they say, in language. Honest complexity is always better than deceitful simplicity. So an art form 
that acknowledges that complexity is needed. It can therefore end up with us feeling that although we can't quite understand this poem, nevertheless we get a sense that that poem somehow understands us. And rather like a child uh, always running ahead of us shouting, catch me if you can, uh, we're going to pursue it, this poem, because we sense that though difficult, it's taking us somewhere important. Our normal language for expressing ourselves is under pressure by this imagined event of the poem. And that feels good. Poetry is helping us detach from what you might call the already made and helping us attach ourselves to the being made. We are being helped to release ourselves from uh, being inarticulate or being trapped by a very limiting convention. Thirdly, um, poetry lovers um, don't agree that truth is just about right or wrong. Instead, they say, truth is far too important a thing to be literalistic about. Life and truth are rich, multi-layered, open to interpretations that feed and build on each other. This has been called the democracy of poetry. Everybody has their own say. And of course, that's why we need the myths and music and the arts and therapists to show that truth is about meaning as well as about facts. If you like, prose is a river. You start here and you read your prose, you follow it and you come to the end. That's the image you might have for prose. But for poetry, you have to think of a fountain or a well from which we're drawing and it's never running dry. There's always more there for us to refresh ourselves with. And the reason for this is because a poem never just tells you something. It opens up a space of creative freedom for you to fill in the gaps, to reimagine, to develop your art of attention. There's more of you, or there should be more of you, at the end of the poem than there was at the beginning. A poem is an invitation, not an arrival lounge. To ask what a poem means, and a lot of people uh, do this when I give talks or readings of other people's uh, poems, they'll often say to me, but what does it mean? And I have to say, well, that question is perhaps as misguided as asking uh, a symphony uh, what the um, piece of music they just played meant. What did it mean, that symphony? Um, the, the meaning is in your response. Now, one researcher working with medical students and poetry concluded this. 
poetry is valued by medical students I'm working with because it doesn't rely entirely on ordinary logic. The preferred method of thinking in which medical students are trained. Poetry, though, addresses things that cannot be said directly, that perhaps are only sensed intuitively rather than known through ordinary thinking. And I often call this poetry's sixth sense. Fourthly, um, as to why people embrace poems and enjoy it, or think it's worth pursuing, uh, those of you who know the work of Carl Jung will know his idea of the shadow. Basically, uh, and forgive me, I'm being brief and uh, paraphrasing here, but uh, Jung believed that as we grow up as human beings, we learn very quickly to please people. Uh, it usually begins with our parents, it becomes then our siblings, our teachers, our tutors, our partners, our bosses at work. And in order to please people and to fit in, what we do is we edit ourselves. And we work very hard on a mask or persona. Uh, this is um, the acceptable face of us and it makes us accepted. And the bits we edit are the bits we feel are not acceptable. Things we often feel shame about. Um, and of course, just remind us all, guilt is different from shame. Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. And that shame, of course, as we know, uh, can often be the parts of us that early on someone has forbidden us to give voice to or express or perhaps ridiculed us about. This can be anything from our sexuality and desire to our creativity. It could be our bodies uh, to our originality. Loads of things uh, about us that have become a don't go there area. That's not me area. Ask yourself what you're never allowed to talk about when you go home or go to work and you'll start to get a sense of how you've edited yourself to fit in to a context. Now, all these things that we feel others or ourselves don't like uh, or want to own as being parts of us because they don't go with our mask, these we put in a sort of large bag. It's a sort of shadow and we carry it around with us hoping no one will see it. However, it has a rather canny way of letting you know it's there. It needs to breathe, as it were. It's not going anywhere, and it's certainly not dying as long as you're alive. So it needs to breathe, and it will come out to play, and uh, its playground quite often is your dream life. Uh, but also it comes out in your projection. So the classic thing, um, don't look at me, I'll point over there so that you're following my finger and not looking at me. 
I'm going to project the things I don't like onto somebody else uh, because I don't want you to spot that I'm like that. Um, also, it can come out in things like our first reactions um, to people or to things. Uh, lots of ways that um, this uh, shadow, this uh, bag of, of unacceptable things uh, will out. And if we suppress this bag, this shadow forcefully, sometimes our body even will start telling us that we need to integrate it and recognise this forbidden land. Uh, the worst voice of the body, perhaps, uh, here is depression. And uh, Jung gives a, a rather graphic image when he says, um, all the things that you uh, suppress for the sake of ambition will one day come back, knife in hand, take its revenge on you. Now whether you agree with this image, this concept, this theory, it's very useful to explain why some embrace poetry, I think. It's one way that we can dip into that unexplored land and discover things that we always knew but had silenced, parts of us that are alive but imprisoned. And the provoking role of poetry, the enticing role of poetry, is to push us into this land of untapped potential and to see what is released when we have the courage to go there, holding, as we do, the hand of the poet. One of the reasons poetry groups can be so important to people is because the quality of the conversation is so different. Truths are being brought into the light that we haven't shared before. And behold, we discover others are just like us and understand and even still like us uh, after all. The caged bird begins to sing. A very uh, recent short book by the young poet Anthony Anaxagoru puts it like this. With poetry, the language becomes intensified, performing double duty, with enough going on behind the scenes that readers are able to experience multiple things at once. The poet um, Samuel Toler, uh, Taylor Coleridge uh, said of George Herbert's poems, that they helped him with his tendency to self-contempt. And this is what poetry can often do for people, I think. It says more than we have to say because we've never quite got there yet. And yet, as I read the poem, I sense it was always there, somewhere in my uh, deeper recesses. Similarly, the Welsh poet R.S. Thomas wrote that poetry is that which arrives at the intellect by way of the heart. If it's true um, that so often the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart, then a language form that helps us get closer, helps us recognise 
helps deepen awareness and amend that bruised but pulsing heartland might be some route to survival. The American poet Wallace Stevens said in a letter to a friend uh, once that we ought to like poetry the way children like snow. I'm not sure how you'll interpret that um, comment. For me, I picture children waking up after a snowfall and uh, pulling open the curtains and seeing the landscape completely changed, reimagined, and then running out in it, uh, seeing their own unique breath in the warm chill of the fresh air, and then realising that there's a new adventure to be had and shared, all thanks to this great gift of snow. Perhaps poetry is welcomed by some people in their lives in a similar way. Now, when you look at some of the titles of poetry anthologies of late, it is something of what I've just been saying that's being expressed, I think. So uh, we have volumes called Poems That Make Grown Men Cry, uh, followed rather quickly by Poems That Make Grown Women Cry. There's the Poetry Pharmacy, based on its author William Seekhart, who goes to various festivals, sets up his tent, and rather like a doctor, hands out poems as prescriptions for each problem that people come to him with. There are books entitled Poetry as Survival, Catching Life by the Throat, Saved by a Poem, and quite recently, Poems for a World Gone to Shit. Now, what I'm not able to do here at this time uh, is to explore just what poetry is. I haven't got the time for that in this lecture, and much ink is spilt on that subject. Nor can I discuss what the consequences of poetry might be, what, um, for instance, political purpose it might have, what public utility it might serve. Is it a mirror or a lamp? Uh, does it simply play us back to ourselves, uh, though with a, an imprecise precision, if I can put it that way? Or has it a way of compensating for our deficiencies? Is there a sort of transcendent aspect to poetry, even a sacred aspect? After all, most of the scriptures of the world's faith uh, are poetic. Sadly, as much as I'd love to, I can't go to these areas with you now. Instead, in our time left, I want to pick up what it is in our mental well-being that poetry might be helping with. If its advocates, as I've been saying, feel that the work of poetry is more than informative, if it's not just informative, is it then rather formative? Is this a language form that helps us become, helps us transform? Maybe a language that heals 
or integrates us somehow, even as it reveals quite often at the same time our divided and disconnected selves. Is this a language for our muffled or bandaged realities? Does reading poetry put people in the right place for the awakening of feeling and the vital beginning of thinking, the right place for being more fully alive? Those are the questions that are in the air now. In her book, Is Literature Healthy? Josie Billington examines the work of Wilfred Bion. Bion was, in the 1960s, the director of the London Clinic of Psychoanalysis and president of the Psychoanalytical Society. And during the Second World War, he had done pioneering work uh, at the Psychiatric Military Hospital in Northfield. And he was there treating servicemen with what was called then war neurosis, what we would probably refer to now as post-traumatic stress. He set out to help the soldiers become aware of their feelings in the hope that they would then confront the complex emotions that had been produced by the trauma of war. What he encountered, though, in the main, was hostility to change and a reluctance to face anxiety and fear. Beyond thought the real source of anxiety in the soldiers was the defences that they had unconsciously put up against their distressing experiences in order not to suffer their distress consciously. They kept speaking optimistically uh, about the future. They resisted focus on the present. And he concluded that our thoughts happen before our thinking. Sounds a bit odd. But if we lack the apparatus of thinking, uh, which enables us to use our thoughts, to think our thoughts, then the personality is incapable of learning from experience. Put it another way, we can work very hard not to know things. Thought is not a product of thinking. It's something forced onto the psyche by the pressure of emotional experience. And if we can't or won't operate on these digest them, convert them, give substance to them, then, Beyond says, it's pretty serious because, and I now quote him, in addition to the obvious penalties that follow from an inability to learn from experience, there is a need for an awareness of an emotional experience, similar to the need for an awareness of concrete objects, that's achieved through sense impressions, because lack of such awareness implies a deprivation, sorry, a deprivation of truth. And truth seems to be essential for psychic health. Billington 
concludes in her book that poetry has a role and a power analogous to that of psychoanalysis in amending and aiding such deprivations in human thought function. Poetry, as it were, helps you to think your thoughts healthily and to integrate them into your life and action. It might help to end with an example of this from Billington's own research. Lois is a young woman in her early 20s who's attending a poetry group. She's suffering some significant neurological impairment resulting from a dreadful accident during a stay in South Africa where she came into contact with an electric fence. The group has been reading Robert Frost's poem The Road Not Taken and you may know it. It has a famous beginning. I'll read it now. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveller. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim. Well, these paths, both paths, lie open to Frost that day, but then he concludes this. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less travelled by, and that has made all the difference. The group, having read this poem, automatically, unsurprisingly, started to talk about life choices, choosing university, choosing a partner and so on, and how it makes the difference. But then for the first time, Lois talked about her accident, about the fact that she went to South Africa and might not have, might not have her disability now, or maybe something worse might have happened. She then said, but if anyone was thinking of going and doing exploring, I'd say, don't do it. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do the other. I'd be awful if, if, I'd be awful if, if I ever had, if I ever had, if I ever had, if, if I ever, if I ever had children, because I'd be like, you're not doing that. Lois stuttered five times on the poem's keyword, if. At no point during the group's 12 weeks did her stutter last so long. She gets stuck on, if I ever had, before managing to complete the sentence, children. What she knows is that as a result of her accident, she's unlikely to ever have children, family. She's known this, one guesses, for quite a while. 
but there are things one knows which one cannot quite think. So it comes through the veiled. If I ever have, wherever probably means never. This is not, says Billington, a voluntary personal story. It's triggered. This is when a reader of a poem knows something real is happening. Another member of that same group um, reflected on what had happened that day and said this. The poem makes you think about things on a more, on a level that you can actually see. In your head you can see what you're thinking rather than it just being part of your general feeling on life. You kind of pinpoint things more. Mostly we're not in the right place to have the right thought. But reading puts me there. So the poet puts us in a potentially creative space by way of a language that is able to release what would otherwise remain unsayable or be reduced to some sort of banal cliché. It's a language that triggers inner echoes ready to be given home. If you like, on the ice of life's cold page, if you imagine a, a white uh, piece of A4, rather like ice, the poet is carefully scratching, crafting the words and space and density of suggestion that matter. Their words on this page, in the, the ice of life as it were, are rather like crampons to make us climb and not fall. Maybe that's why the same Wallace Stevens called poetry one of the enlargements of life. Lewis Hyde, in his classic book, The Gift, argues that greater art offers us images by which to imagine our lives. And once the imagination has been awakened, it is procreative. Through it, we can give more than we were given, say more than we had to say. Whatever conclusions you've made in this series of lectures, regarding mental health, I would suggest that poetry enlarges our repertoire for being. It broadens, deepens perception. It deepens attention. And it celebrates that great truth that the much-missed Maya Angelou named. There is no greater agony, she says, than bearing an untold story within you. When it comes to the human psyche, good poetry always has a timeliness about it, but also a timelessness about it. I commend it to you, because as Michael Longley once said when he was asked where all his poetry came from, if I knew where poems came from, I'd go and live there. So maybe we should end with a poem, and one that might help all our mental health in these very difficult days. It's by John O'Donoghue. 
This is the time to be slow. Lie low to the wall until the bitter weather passes. Try as best you can not to let the wire brush of doubt scrape from your heart all sense of yourself and your hesitant light. If you remain generous, time will come good and you will find your feet again on fresh pastures of promise where the air will be kind and blushed with beginning. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking. Thank you.